You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1909th edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 15th of December 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham Parley, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and myself, Graham Parley. We should also like to mention our processing team who work very hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. But before we start, I have to, of course, mention that this is the Christmas special. Hey! Which there will be a few <laughs> items relating to Christmas in. And Sue <laughs> has promised that she's not going to sing. Mm. So that, that saves all of us, really. It's going to make it difficult because I can't speak either. However, we're going to start with some headlines now. Loss of parkland almost costs hospital in nail-biting vote. Street lighting payment slammed as abhorrent by independent councillors. Retailer launches £1 million funding boost to help locals stay warm. Development of 46 new homes given go-ahead. A new larger West Suffolk hospital has been given the go-ahead after a split vote by councillors. The public need for a new hospital was weighed against fears about emergency access and ecological harm at West Suffolk Council's Development Control Committee last week, leading the chairman to cast the deciding vote in favour. A new hospital of up to 100,000 square metres will replace the existing 44,000 square metre facility and will be located on Hardwick Manor in Bury St Edmunds. A full planning application to change the use of Hardwick Manor from residential to health-related was also approved on Wednesday. Councillor Andrew Drummond, who recommended approval, said, The care you get at West Suffolk Hospital is fantastic, but the building is past its use-by date and that will inevitably affect services. The current hospital was built in the 1970s and has structural defects associated with the RAAC, reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete used in its roof and walls. It is expected the current building would not last far beyond 2030 and government funding was gained to replace it under the new hospital's programme with a commitment to have it built by 2030. Following the approval, South Suffolk MP James Cartledge said, My 2019 positive plan election address to constituents in South Suffolk included details of the government's £13.4 million investment into West Suffolk Hospital. I am therefore delighted that the online planning application for the new hospital has been approved and is on track for completion before the end of the decade. This rebuild will ensure that the hospital delivers high-quality care for my constituents for many years to come. The application site of approximately 54 hectares is owned by West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust. This includes 6.2 hectares to the west of Horscroft Road and south of Gypsy Lane to be used for temporary construction compound during building work. The area of the site in which the hospital currently stands is allocated as hospital and hospice land, while the remaining area is countryside land. Councillor Jason Crook said, This is a real shame. 
the applicant has chosen to destroy parkland that's hundreds of years old and it's completely irreplaceable when we all know there are better alternatives. It is so frustrating. I don't think I can vote for this because of the destruction of the parkland. According to the officer's report, the development is expected to result in the loss of 11.5 hectares of wax-capped grassland from the Hardwick Manor site. This type of grassland is classified as irreplaceable habitat and the officer's report accepted that harm to ecology cannot be avoided. A compensation strategy will involve the planting of at least 115 hectares of wax-capped grassland or wood pasture in another location but this will take decades to develop. Parts of West Suffolk are getting an unfair deal, say councillors. Concerned street lights are paid for by town councils in some areas and the district council in others. The issue was raised by independent councillors who represent Brandon East, Mildenhall Town and Brandon Central, respectively, earlier this week at West Suffolk Council's cabinet meeting. Councillor Phil Whittam, Andrew Neal and Victor Lukaniak told the meeting their wards are getting an unfair deal because the town and parish councils pay for street lighting in them, while the district council pays the old St Edmundsbury areas. The areas were part of Forest Heath District Council before it merged with St Edmundsbury Council to form West Suffolk Council in 2019. (coughs) <coughs> the town and parish councils paid for streetlights in Forest Heath before the merge. However, since 2019, the council tax in the old Forest Heath council areas has been increased to match that of the old St Edmundsbury area. Speaking at the meeting, Councillor Neil said, The unrest is growing as the towns and parishes become more aware of the situation. They believe they have paid the same rate, but they are not treated the same. Doing nothing is not an option. Portfolio members told the meeting the District Council was not responsible for lighting, but the County Council, which runs the Highway Authority. Leader of the Council, Councillor John Griffiths, said, These are your lights and we're trying to help you by looking into this complex situation. I'm not quite sure why you are seeking to put the blame on the people who are firstly not responsible and secondly trying to assist you in your efforts. Talking after the meeting, Councillor Whittam said ward members had been shedding light on the matter since 2019. He said, quite frankly, it is abhorrent that we should be paying twice for a service that isn't charged in the old St Edmundsbury area. All we are saying is either get rid of the contract with the old St Edmundsbury area and let the town and parish pay for their lighting or include our area in the same arrangement. They are saying it is not our problem, which is the same as saying we're not part of West Suffolk. Councillor Whittam also said the street lighting contract with old St Edmundsbury renews next year, giving an opportunity to either get rid of or get rid of it or entirely add the old Forest Heath areas. A retailer has launched a £1 million warm space funding boost for vital services helping local communities stay warm as temperatures plummet. 
Co-op, which is food stores across Norfolk and Suffolk, has partnered with Crowdfunder to create an initiative that allows organisations to apply for a share of the £1 million scheme. Groups can apply for up to £3,000 to help fill funding shortfalls for projects that are helping communities across East Anglia stay warm and fed during the winter. The retailer has set up the initiative after its research found that nearly two-thirds, or 59%, of community projects have experienced a shortfall in funding during the past 12 months. As well as this, more than three-quarters, or 84%, of local causes have seen an increase in demand, particularly those providing support for people through the cost-of-living crisis. Rebecca Birkbeck from Co-op said... As our co-op research shows, we have a huge role to play in supporting community groups and the people that they help during the cost of living crisis. Funding for warm spaces forms part of our response to our community missions of access to food, mental well-being, support and opportunities for young people. Launching this funding boost will help groups keep their lights and heating on as they bring communities together to keep warm in the coldest months of the year, increasing overall well-being. It may also mean people don't have to choose between accessing food or heating this winter. Rob Love, founder and CEO of Crowdfunder, added, This vital funding is needed now more than ever to make sure there are enough warm spaces open throughout the colder months. Through Crowdfunder, we are able to connect funding from large organisations such as the Co-op with thousands of small charities and community projects who are desperately in need of help. Work will soon begin on a new housing development in Great Cornard after plans received unanimous approval from district councillors. Despite concerns locally that the scheme is excessive for the area, Bayburn District Council's planning committee granted approval to North Avenue Development Company last week, enabling 46 new homes off Bures Road to go ahead. The scheme previously received outline planning permission in October 2019, with the current application setting out design and layout details of the development, which includes new highway access and a children's play area. Despite the earlier outline approval, Great Corner Parish Council has maintained its opposition, arguing that the housing mix was out of keeping with the area and unsuitable for the village's ageing population. Parish clerk Nadine Tamlin said the number of properties proposed is too dense and a number closer to 30 would be more appropriate for the size of the site. Great Cornard has been well developed in recent years and squeezing 46 units onto this site is, in the council's opinion, overdevelopment. The site's proximity to the railway line between Sudbury and Marks Tay was also highlighted as a safety concern. During the Bayburg planning meeting last Wednesday, Sudbury councillor Alison Owen asked, what is stopping the children running across the railway line? In response, officers confirmed that a requirement for adequate fencing between the homes and the railway line would be included in the conditions for planning permission. Case Officer Elizabeth Flood stated in her approval recommendation that the principle for development was already established and the design and landscape details were considered acceptable for the site. Councillor Alistair McCraw told the meeting for high-density housing, 
I think the designs are actually quite a nice mix. Meanwhile, a separate development proposal for new homes in Bilderston was withdrawn from the same meeting, following a request by the developer. The application for 48 houses on land east of Artis Close and Rotherham Road had been recommended for approval. However, councillors agreed to defer any decision after case officer Daniel Cameron revealed that the landowner had sold their interest in the site to Orbit Homes, which is seeking to make alterations to the plans. Griff Rhys-Jones' annual Christmas show has smashed last year's eye-watering total to raise more than £100,000 to support children and their families. Comedy giants Bill Bailey, John Coleshaw and Milton Jones were among the incredible lineup for Happy Christmas Ipswich 3 at the Ipswich Regent. The theatre had a sell-out crowd of 1,500 for the show on Monday night, which has beaten last year's total of £92,000 before the final total is even counted. Mr Rhys Jones has organised the event again in aid of East Anglia's children hospices, each of which he is ambassador. Raiding his contact book, the evening also featured Adam Buxton, Andy Hamilton, Richard Herring, Tiff Stevenson, Deborah Francis White, legendary comedy writer John Lloyd, Phil Pope and Janie Dee also took to the stage. Becky Redbound, each event's manager, said, What an incredible night. It's the third time we've held the show and it gets bigger and better every time. The variety is superb and the acts are simply first class, generously giving their time to support our charity. Our thanks go to every person who came along for buying tickets and putting money in our collection buckets. I hope they love the mix of comedy and music and I bet they're still on a real high, just like I am. We couldn't be happier to smash that eye-watering amount, added the events manager. Our thanks also go to the businesses who supported us by advertising in our souvenir brochure, not to mention our headline sponsor, the New Homes Group. Last but certainly not least, we're eternally thankful to Griff. He makes everything possible, and without him we wouldn't have a show. It's as simple as that. His infectious energy and enthusiasm, not to mention his vast contacts, drives the whole thing, and I can't speak highly enough of his dedication and commitment to the cause. Once again, it was a night that will live long in the memory. Each supports families and cares for children and young people with life-threatening conditions across Suffolk and the rest of East Anglia. In addition to the Tree House in Ipswich, each has two other hospices, the Nook, just outside Norwich, and at Milton, near Cambridge. The article I'm about to read is What did the Romans do for us in Suffolk? Landing in 43 AD... <coughs> The Romans made modern-day Colchester in neighbouring Essex, then called Camaldonium, the capital of Roman Britain. Anyone who's been to Colchester will know all about the remains of the Roman walls and the Roman circus. But here in Suffolk, a few traces of their legacy can still be seen to this day. In Ipswich, remains of Roman settlements have been found over the years in places such as Belstead Brook, where gold talks dating back to the first century have since been uncovered by archaeologists. It is thought that this former Roman period settlement was perhaps a religious enclosure similar to Snettisham in Norfolk. In the Boss Hall area of the 
the town, evidence from Suffolk Heritage Explorer uncovered a series of enclosures, trackways and fields dating back to the mid-first and mid-third centuries in Hanford Road. Some of the structures unearthed include probable timber buildings, a well pottery production and iron working before the Saxons invaded and settled. The most significant site in Ipswich, however, has to be the Castle Hill Villa, a complex which comprised of several buildings arranged around a courtyard. While Suffolk's archaeologists don't have a complete plan, it's the county's largest known villa from that era and is home to a a number of Roman features, including hypocausts and bath-building mosaic floors and plaster on the walls, Examined in the 19th and 20th century, archaeologists also found a plaque depicting ancient solar deity Attis and occultist stamp, and it is believed the site possibly belonged to someone who had links in the administration of the late Roman military coastal defence system. Before it succumbed to the sea, however, the Normans reused the fort as a bailey for one of the castles built by one of the bigod earls. Strengthened by Hugh Bigod, the castle was unfortunately confiscated by King Henry II in 1175-76. It was dismantled, although the walls of the Roman fort survived. The fort was still around for most of the 17th and 18th century, but when the antiquarian Francis Gross penned in his 1786 book The Antiquities of England and Wales, he noted that it was only visible at low water. In the subsequent years, it has since been taken by the sea and is visible on a clear day at a low tide. Impressive architecture aside, the Romans also brought with them innovation by way of pottery to Suffolk. In 1886, Henry Prigg found two pottery kilns at Westow Heath. There are numerous examples in the Watersfield area where resources included good potting clay. Most of the Roman kilns produced are a grey ware for everyday kitchen ware, but some finer wares were also provided, reduced, he explains. Other Roman kilns have also been uncovered across the county, including one in Homersfield, which has contained pottery, a face mask, mould for jugs and coins, and other excavated in Botsdale by Basil Brown in 1946. Spectacular Christmas Tree Festival attracts 5,000 visitors. So more than 5,000 people began their foray into the festive season with a walk around the town's annual Christmas Tree Festival. St Mary Le Tower opened its doors to the week-long event on December the 1st and welcomed its last guest on Wednesday. The popular free event saw an extra 1,000 people than the 4,000 strong crowds that attended in 2021. The church's interior and grounds were decorated with more than a hundred decorated trees sponsored by businesses, charities and individuals from the town. The church's vicar, the Reverend Tom Mumford, said, It's been fantastic, the amount of people that come back again and say how important it is to their Christmas tradition. The amount of young people and children enjoying the festival. He praised the diverse range of organisations and individuals sponsoring trees from big corporate companies to smaller charities. People have been getting a sense of what there is to do in the community, said Mr Mumford. 
he thanked the many volunteers that gave up their time to share the meanings behind the trees. A tree with sensory features for children with special educational needs and disabilities will also be on display. The centrepiece of the festival will feature a nativity scene at the front of the church's high altar. And this year's event is raising money for the church and Amos Suffolk, the mayor of Ipswich's chosen charity. There are a number of concerts held during the week, including a performance from school pupils on December the 2nd. Work has <coughs> begun to remove trees outside a Suffolk church which were responsible for the collapse of a wall earlier this year. Roots from the trees outside St Michael's Church in Framlingham were believed to have caused the 30 to 40 metre section of brickwork alongside Church Street to fall in. November last year, causing damage to a parked car. At the time, volunteers came out in force to help clear the debris off the car, while the sudden collapse happened as runner Jim Last was passing the wall. He described how he heard bricks falling onto the road, adding, I was running in the road next to it at the time. We heard the bang from the first section hitting the car and then saw the rest of it collapse. It definitely collapsed on its own. There were no cars around at the time, just us running past. East Suffolk councillor Morris Cook, who represents Framlingham, said the tree roots had com compromised the structure of the wall, triggering the collapse. He said these trees were due to be removed during the summer. It has now been on the plan to remove these trees for some months because of the damage to the wall and before the wall could be replaced. He was not aware of a tree preservation order being in place on the trees, which is an order made by planning authorities to prevent specific trees from being cut back or felled without permission. He added, It is always a shame when trees come down, but this work has been carried out out of necessity rather than desire. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting. Free solar panels for firms. Businesses in Newmarket and Mildenhall with suitable roofs are being offered the chances to have fully funded solar panels fitted, reducing their energy bills and carbon emissions. West Suffolk Council is inviting more businesses to join the 67 organisations currently benefiting from the scheme and which between them prevent 1,300 tonnes of CO2 being released into the atmosphere every year. Newmarket Councillor Andy Drummond, Environment and Regulatory Portfolio holder, said The free schemes see solar panels installed on suitable roofs. The electricity generated is sold back to the business at a lower rate than the current tariff. Expressing interest is simple. Just contact environment at westsuffolk.gov.uk. It would help us understand your electricity consumption if you could attach a recent electricity bill and please tell us if you own the premises you would like the panels installed on. A senior government minister pledged that the new devolved powers would work more effectively this time in Suffolk as he signed a deal to hand the county greater autonomy and control of a £480 million investment fund. Lee Rowley, Under Secretary of State for Local Government and Building Safety, said the government would be working collaboratively collaboratively with local leaders, sorry about that, as he handed councils greater control over spending during a signing session at agricultural firm, firm Class. 
at Saxon Business Park. Previous attempts to hand the region more authority, such as the creation of the East of England Regional Assembly, have been axed. But Mr Rowley said this time the government would be working with the existing two-tier system rather than setting up a new institution. The newly devolved powers, which have been granted to Cornwall, York, North Yorkshire and East Midlands, allow for the creation of directly elected mayors. But this idea was rejected by Suffolk County Council during deal negotiations. He added there would be a different approach for different areas, while his department for levelling up housing and communities was aiming to be flexible and listen to local views. Ultimately, it is about giving local areas more power over the things they can do to change people's lives long term. What the government is trying to do today is to say that we trust local leaders to make these decisions. Mr Rowley added, The County Council's leader, Matthew Hicks, who co-signed the deal with Mr Rowley on Thursday, said, I think this is a huge opportunity for Suffolk by giving the County Council more power to make decisions about what is best for Suffolk. As well as the £480 million funding, the devolution deal also provides £5.8 million to regenerate brownfield land for housing and control of the adult education budget to shape provision to the needs of residents and the local economy. A further £3 million is being provided to fund more energy-efficient homes, while there will also be support for improved transport infrastructure. Mr Hicks cited examples of where this would make a difference, such as by supporting Adestral Park at Martlesham, home of telecoms firm BT, by training potential recruits in the skills needed. Previous devolution deals were for Norfolk and Suffolk. They were based on different things, but this is very much about local government in Suffolk. We are very clear we do not need a mayor. We want to work with the existing two-tier system and the County Council is working with our partners and the existing boroughs, he said. Mr Hickson said the deal was the first step towards the great future for the county, adding it will enable the county to drive growth and plan for the long term as we look to level up and unlock our potential. During his speech, Mr Rowley said the class site was an example of the brilliance and innovation that the devolution deal sought to unlock in Suffolk, a county that was home to agricultural and global businesses. It is great to be here on this landmark day for the region. I can't think of a better place to launch the devolution deal than here in Bury St Edmunds, he said. Jack Abbott, Labour's prospective parliamentary candidate, for Ipswich criticised the deal for shortchanging the county, saying the funding could not make up for the money the government had cut from its funding for local authorities. He said, it's like someone takes £20 off you, returns a quid and expects to be thanked. Oversubscribed residence parking changes unveiled. Changes to the oversubscribed residence parking scheme in Bury St Edmunds have been revealed. 
West Suffolk Council commissioned a review for the town's 12 parking zones after concerns were raised that too many permits were being handed out compared to the number of spaces available. The issue was exacerbated as residents felt the impact of civil parking enforcement, which the authority took over in April 2020. Following the review, West Suffolk Council has announced that from January the 9th, permit holders will be allowed to use the authorities' off-street car parks in Bury St Edmunds Town Centre at no extra charge between 4pm and 10am, seven days a week. Councillor Peter Stevens, Cabinet Member for Operations at the Council, said they had listened to residents and the measures would be reviewed after 18 months to ensure it was working. Mike Brundle of Guildhall Street hit out at the changes as rhubarb as he felt there was little difference from the existing scheme. However, Vivian Gainsborough Foote, chairman of Churchgate Area Association, said she was delighted with the alterations. Both said they were waiting for 30 extra parking spaces promised for Zone D due to be delivered by West Suffolk Council. A Suffolk Highway spokesman said the space would be installed in the new year, but exact dates have not yet been confirmed. Other changes include extending the parking permit hours potentially in the spring. In some zones there are currently 8am to 6pm and others 10am to 4pm. Subject to a traffic regulation order, a TRO, these will become 8am to 8pm. Car registration details will be added to permits to counter unauthorised use. Changes limiting the number of permits to two per household will be rolled out as permits come up for renewal, while blue badge holders will also become liable to pay for residential permits. Residents of a pensionable age who don't own a car will no longer get a free permit, but will still be able to buy visitor vouchers. One option that will require further work is the integration of permit zones, where one is heavily oversubscribed and the other less so. Suffolk Police have appointed a new Chief Constable. The formal appointment of Rachel Keirton was confirmed on Friday at the Police and Crime Panel, which was held at Suffolk County Council's Endeavour House in Ipswich. Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner, Tim Passmore, presented his proposal to appoint Miss Keirton following a recruitment process held last month. The panel unanimously supported this appointment. Following her appointment, Miss Keirton said, I am immensely proud to be appointed as Suffolk's Chief Constable. I believe the quality of officers, staff and volunteers in Suffolk is very high. I am honoured to lead such an exceptionally dedicated workforce. My Chief Officer team and I are committed to relentlessly pursuing high standards and to serving all communities fairly and equitably. Mr Passmore added, I was very pleased to propose Rachel as Suffolk's next Chief Constable. It is a momentous appointment as Rachel will be the first female holder of the post in our county. Rachel was a strong candidate and impressed us with her forthright commitment to public service and delivering for the people of Suffolk. Rachel has a wealth of experience and knows the enormous challenges ahead for us in Suffolk including finance, increasing demand and the changes in the pattern of crime. I have no doubt that she is the right person to lead Suffolk Constabulary in this delivery of my police and crime plan. And now for some letters. Dame Claire treated everyone with kindness. This is a letter from Chris Wall of Ipswich who writes, 
Thank you for your lovely tribute to Dame Claire Marks, the East Anglian Daily Times, December the 1st. So often when I read obituaries of high-achieving people, I do wonder, yes, but what were they really like? I first met Dame Claire at a speech day at a school where she was a governor, and then much later when I became a patient representative on the round table that she originated at the GMC to try to reach real patients like me. Dame Claire was the same with everyone and on all occasions. She was friendly, fair, informative and calm and so often had a very attractive gleam in her eye. She was also interested in what others had to say and gave them a very fair hearing. But her greatest characteristic that I shall remember with much gratitude was her insistence upon the importance of kindness being liberally shown, whether between doctors or to their patients and indeed from patients to their doctors. In short, exactly the sort of person whom we need at the top of every profession. And my letter is from Tony Parker of Hadley. We must learn to live with immigration. If our leaders were honest with us and treated us like adults, they would tell us that immigration will be with us for the foreseeable future, in current numbers or probably greater. This is inevitable given the devastation being caused by climate change in many countries, which is only going to get worse, and also as a result of the sheer number of people caught up in wars and other conflicts. Many people will continue, quite understandably, to try to escape from these catastrophes. People who wish to make their home in the West also know that there is a market for labour in many countries, especially those with falling birth rates like the UK. I believe that Jacob Rees-Mogg said that food banks were an example of the marketplace in action, i.e. working well. Can the same not be said of immigrants wanting to come to the UK to work and start a new life? Our politicians should tell us the truth. We must all get real. The situation is not going to change, and rather than try to fight it, we should be directing our energies to learning to live with it and even use it as an opportunity to our advantage. And now another memory, at this time of Christine McVie, written by Graham Day of Stowmarket. As one travels through life, musicians and artists who you saw at early stages in their careers before finally becoming famous sadly pass away. Such was the case when I heard that Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac had died at the age of 79. As always, my mind races back to earlier times. On a hot summer Monday evening in 1969 at the renowned Bluesville Club held at the Manor Ballroom, we went to see a band called Chicken Shack, led by Stan, the man, Webb, Christine Perfect, as she was then, played an excellent blues piano and was a superb vocalist, particularly on the Etta James number, I'd Rather Go Blind, the band's first single released that summer. I never managed to see her with Fleetwood Mac. However, on that summer evening in 1969, little did I know that I was seeing a superstar of the future. And this letter is from Jill Fisher, the close Sudbury. Sweepers deserve credit, drivers less so. Last week I was critical of Baber District Council. This week I hope to redress the situation. Through our local ward councillor, we requested that our road, which has no pavement and is inches deep in mud and leaves, be swept. On Friday afternoon, bollards were placed by the council where drivers from other roads choose to park. 
to the detriment of people who actually live here. The sweeper lorry duly arrived at 6am to find that some drivers had moved the bollards and parked the cars as usual. This meant that the work could not be carried out. I received a phone call from our local councillor that the sweeper would try again at 10am, which it did, only to find the same vehicles still in the way. Nevertheless, the staff proceeded to work to the best of their abilities under trying circumstances, remaining in good humour, sweeping awkward corners and doing their level best to improve the state of the road. So from the residents of the close through to Bannham Drive, I would like to say a few words of thanks to Baybird District Council. These are not the words I would reserve for those car or van users who only think of themselves. Now I've got two letters to read about the same subject, the state of our road signs. The first one is from John Dell of Shotley, and he writes, I was fascinated to see Bob Hogar's letter on collapsed road signs, <coughs> the EADD, December the 1st. When we travel around Suffolk by car, we play a game of spot the collapsed, damaged or indecipherable road sign. Many road signs, if upright, are so faded that they may as well not be there. Excuse me. <coughs> Hence the latter. We also play a subsidiary game if there are too few in these categories of spot the road sign which is so rusted that it's about to fall over. That one requires more concentration, but if you go back that way a few months later, you can always check whether it now falls in another category. And the other one, from George McKissick from Hadley, he writes, I wouldn't agree more with Bob Hogar's letter about the dire state of road direction signs around Suffolk, the letter's December the 1st. Some years back I contacted my local Suffolk councillor for roads, plus my MP, about the absent direction sign at the junction of the A134 and the A1071 when travelling from Sudbury without success. As a stranger, you would have no idea that this is an important junction between Sudbury and Ipswich, nor that Hadley is also on this route. Yet this is a county which is keen to attract tourists to the area, or does this only apply to the Suffolk coastline? perhaps. Pitiful, really. And this next letter is from Philip Smith, Mallard Way, Great Cornard. Thank you to those who came to aid. On Thursday, November the 24th, I was crossing the road in Stannard Way near Kings Hill and tripped flat on the road. Several people came to my aid and tried to move me off the road. My knee was obviously badly injured and I was losing blood from my nose. Those wonderful people did all they could in their care for me. No ambulance was available. A friend of one of those people phoned a friend who is a paramedic. He very kindly came and assessed the situation, and he phoned my son, who was working in Sudbury. When he arrived, they all managed to get me into the back of the car. On arrival at West Suffolk Hospital, I was taken in. I had a broken my patella, my kneecap, I wish to thank all those wonderful people who cared for me at the roadside. The staff at the hospital were exemplary, caring and very professional despite the pressure they are currently under. I cannot thank them sufficiently, and I hope that somehow this heartfelt message can be got to them. Many thanks. And I think that's uh, very appropriate uh, given what's happening today with the nurses. Indeed, yes. So now we have one from Martin Dayton in Woodbridge who writes wrong place for power station. 
Our government has decided to build nuclear fission reactors and nuclear waste storage on the coast at Sizewell. They and the supporters of this project cannot be aware of the outcome COP27. Whatever we think about the wisdom of building huge nuclear fission reactors, in my view, no thinking person can honestly support the placing of one of these locations in the face of rising sea levels and storm and tidal surges. I believe we are about to leave another environmental catastrophe to our children's children. The suggestion that this project will create new jobs in a country with over one million job vacancies, many in the nuclear science industry, provides no sustainable argument for this proposal. The use of the heat from nuclear fission to drive steam turbines may have its place, but they must be placed in perhaps smaller units closer to points of demand, and it is clear that Sizewell is the wrong place. This letter is from Paul Greenwood, Chairman of the Newmarket District Branch of the Royal British Legion. Great support for our poppy appeal this year. The people of Newmarket have shown their great support for the armed services by supporting the poppy appeal in the town this year. The appeal organiser, Julie Mallows and her deputies, Steve Mallows and Brian Parsley, have done extremely well along with the many volunteers who have supported this year's appeal. We have covered different locations and venues with the support of the youth service organisations that have risen to the challenge and assisted us greatly. This is the benefit of working closer with the cadets and them being affiliated to our branch. My personal thanks goes to the appeal organiser, her deputies and all the volunteers and the cadets who have supported the poppy appeal in the town this year. We have exceeded our expectations with the amount raised and have shown that the branch is back on the map, locally continuing, continuing to develop, expanding and moving forward. Clifford Davy from Stowmarket writes, Working men ready for action. Early morning, my wife pulled the curtains open to reveal a nasty, wet day. A large van drew up and parked, allowing three workmen to alight. Dressed in yellow waterproof garments, they portrayed the best in the working man, ready for action. They crossed the road, where a hole had been dug four days previously. Now things halted. One worker, I use this expression loosely, stood kicking his heels. The other two sat down in a nearby bus shelter. A van arrived, and a chap, smartly attired, obviously issued instructions and left the scene. Gradually, things progressed. Work began with barriers removed, activity in the hole which was covered. Two more trucks arrived to take the barriers away. The original workers loaded their van and the performance ended. Quite a cast for a short show, but entertaining all the same. And this letter is from Robert Halliday of Bury St Edmunds. MP's poor example to others. There has been much debate and controversy about the recent upsurge in the many workers going on strike in the run-up to Christmas season. At the same time, Matt Hancock, a Suffolk Member of Parliament, has abandoned his duties to appear on the utterly ludicrous reality television programme. Maybe this is a tautology, since all reality television programmes are utterly ludicrous. Members of Parliament are paid very high salaries for doing their jobs. If a Member of Parliament is clearly shown to make a high-profile display of abandoning their duties and responsibilities at this serious time, why should anybody else be expected to conscientiously do their duties and their work? 
Martin Dayton from Woodbridge writes fears over loss of EU laws. Mr Gove and his ERG, European Research Group colleagues, are now preparing to remove EU laws and regulations that protect workers' rights, child protections, farm animal rights, food production standards, wildlife protection, environmental protections and a host of other laws that the UK had a major part in preparing. The impact of the loss of these rights and protections will reduce the UK to a level of human rights and environmental protections that will be amongst the lowest in the world. This act of removal of protections, we are told, is essential in order to remove constraints and restrictions on employers and businesses in order to improve profits and achieve growth. Freedoms and protections lost at the moment are needed now more than ever. Senior County Councillor says Seneca has failed to do its homework. A senior County Councillor said the proposal for a massive solar farm near Newmarket was the poorest application he had ever had to deal with. Councillor Richard Wright, Suffolk County Council's Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Finance and Environment, was speaking about the Seneca's 2,500-acre proposal at the first hearing of the formal examination process by the Planning Inspectorate's Examination Pan Authority Panel at Newmarket's Memorial Hall on Tuesday. The Council Authority has reiterated its position that the current proposal for the solar farm, which is planned for four sites on the Suffolk-Cambridge border, is unacceptable. Councillor Wright, who has had political responsibility for overseeing the Council's response to nationally significant infrastructure projects such as Sizewell Sea, said the Council wholly supports the need for the nation's low-carbon future and as an authority we have our own net-zero targets by 2030. But I will not allow Suffolk's communities to be pushed to one side by an application like this, which has not adequately engaged with local people and businesses, nor seemingly done its homework on the enormous impact this solar farm will have. There remains a very great deal of work to be done before this proposal can be considered anywhere near acceptable. The examining authority began its process in September which is will include on March 28th next year. A report and recommendation will then be sent to the Secretary of State, who is expected to make the final decision whether to approve the project or not later in 2023. The hearings were continuing at the Memorial Hall yesterday and are on today and tomorrow when an open floor hearing is due to get underway at 10am. And now for something a little different. Paul Welford is going to tell us about December in the garden and what we should be doing. So first of all, we should be insulating and protecting outside taps from freezing. November is best, but there's still time to plant tulip bulbs if you do it soon. Prune apple trees to maintain an open framework. Plant bare root roses and trees. And if you haven't already, wrap or pack with straw the crowns of tree fern to protect from the cold. And now is the time to hard prune overgrown shrubs whilst they are dormant. So the end of the year is upon us. And so that was 2022. Where did the time go? One month blended into another. And before we knew it, winter had passed and the new buds burst to herald the arrival of spring. 
Summer then came and didn't really want to leave. What a hot one that was. Then here we are as the last few days of autumn passed and we are back into winter. So, those are the seasons which give us a great variety of weather conditions. The plants provide us with an array of blooms and colourful foliage too to please the eye, pleasant scents which drift along in the breeze and the buzz of bees and birds chorus to delight our ears. So what requires our attention in the garden this month? December is one of the quieter months in the garden, but there's still work to be done. Firstly, the tidying up of the debris and fallen leaves. Don't be too hasty in clearing everything away, and be careful not to disturb any sleeping creatures, in particular hedgehogs, as they like nothing better than curling up in a pile of old, dry leaves that are blown under a bush, ready for hibernating through the cold of winter. Unfortunately, due to many factors, hedgehogs are in decline, and as they are one of the gardener's friends, liking nothing more than munching away on slugs and snails, we need to do everything possible to aid their survival. As well as the tidying up, another job I've got to do this month is replace a boundary fence, as unfortunately it's seen better days. If you need a new fence, it's a great time to carry out the work, especially if you have a flower border running in front of it. As many of the plants are now dormant, it's a lot easier to see what you're doing, and you will do less damage than if the work is carried out during the growing season. But what complicates the situation and makes the task look longer for me is a Leylandi, hedge running in front of it, and up to eight feet wide in places. I've decided to remove it, as it's going brown in many places, and although it does provide cover for the birds in the garden, it doesn't do much else. So that's coming out. I will erect a new fence, then replant to recreate a new hedge. I won't be putting back Leylandi, but replacing it with a U, which is much easier to keep under control and doesn't suffer from the cypress aphid like the Leylandi does, creating the dead brown patches and hedges which you frequently see. But a point to note, all parts of the U are toxic to humans. However, birds love U's red berries. The red flesh around the seed itself is toxic. Birds' digestive systems are unable to break down the seed coating, so the toxicity within the seed is not released, and the seed is dispersed intact in the bird's droppings. So, if you feel you is not an option for you because of its toxicity, there are plenty of other good options to hedges, such as beech, hornbeam, or, as I wrote about it last month's article, pittisporum. Whatever you are doing in the garden this month, enjoy the time outside. The daylight hours will soon be stretching out and the warmer days will soon be upon us. If next year goes as fast as this year has gone, happy Christmas. My next article is from Martin Taylor, who's a local historian. And this article is, it's a history mystery. In medieval times, the area around Checker Square was prone to flooding and known as Paddock Pool as water cascaded down and collected from Churchgate Street. For many years it was thought that the Exchequer of the Abbey was here as a 15th century map of Bury shows it is Exchequer. The name derives from the checkerboard, once used in financial reckoning. An Exchequer was also responsible for collecting revenues such as rents or taxes and paying out monies. The officer of the abbey or obedentiary, to do this, a thesaurus, we would know him today as a treasurer. However, a, a place akin to a treasury would be the abbot, 
sorry, I beg your pardon, would the abbot have allowed the outside of the abbey walls beyond his watchful eye? Another idea touted is that there was a checkers inn here, possibly on the site of number four today. Again, theoretical. What is definite is that number three was home to the 15th century merchant John Barrett, a contemporary of Jenkins Smith, premier medieval benefactor of Bury. In recent years, the course of refurbishment, medieval wall paintings were discovered here along with a 14th century stone archway. John inherited family wealth which had been founded on the wool and cloth industry and his wonderful Chantry Chapel ceiling and tomb can be seen in St Mary's Church. The house adjacent to to this was known for many years as the Spinner's House as this is where some of his workers were employed. During World War II, both houses were used as forces study centre operated by the British Army Educational Corps and highlighted that a delightful book, A Suffolk Summer by American serviceman John Appleby, numbers 1 and 2, Checker Square, date from 1840. We know this because there was a row between the sorry, beg your pardon, a row between the owners and Bury's paving commissioners. Then, as to how far and spl- the splendid wrought iron balconies were to protrude, the much-loved Grade Two listed obelisk was originally in the Horse Market, now St Mary's Square. It is cleverly shown there from a bird's-eye view painting from 1842, possibly by Samuel Reed with its weather-worn borough coat of arms, and it now stands forlorn amidst parked cars. Bells ringing again after 50 years. The villagers of Troston will hear their church bells ring out for Christmas for the first time in 50 years after they were reinstated. The five bells of St Mary's Church have been refurbished and rehung this week after a former resident gave substantial donation to strengthen the tower and renew the site's bell frame. Getting the church bells back working is part of an extensive restoration project, enabling the church to be fully accessible. In in 1987, work to rehang the bells came to a halt when funds ran out, and they've sat at the back of the church for 35 years. The bishop will bless the bells to future date and the Troston Bull Pub is making a special commemorative brew to celebrate the return of the church chimers. Gritters ready to keep roads open. Over 24,000 tonnes of salt is stocked at locations across Suffolk ready to help keep the county moving this winter, gritting season. Suffolk highways, which treat Suffolk's road network, when surface temperature dropped below 1 degree centigrade, has been carefully planning for the arrival of the winter gritting season, including establishing gritting routes, hiring drivers and preparing for the gritting lorries for action. During the 2021-2022 winter season, Suffolk's 40 gritting lorries used around 9,388 tonnes of salt to treat a total distance of... 129,367 miles, which equates to travelling the circumference of the earth over five times. Highway teams are responsible for gritting 36 priority 1 P1 routes, which amount to around 1,259 miles, including all A and B roads, 
to fire stations, hospitals, main bus routes and rail stations. Now I've got here an additional bit about the Gritters because the Gritters uh, name their lorries and uh, here's a few of them. Alexander the Grit, mm. Sir Melton John are just some of the names of the Gritters keeping drivers safe on Suffolk's roads this winter. There are 41 Gritters in Suffolk based in various depots. They're expected to be out in force once again. A yellow, a yellow weather warning for ice has been issued for parts of Suffolk this week. So I'm going to read out just some of the names, not all 41. And uh, here we go. Uh, Gritney Spears. Mm. Father Gritmas. Mm. Spready Mercury. Mm. Gritty McGritface. Saltasaurus. <laughs> uh, Gritta Garbo. And Eartha Grit. So I'll stop at that, stop at that, because uh, I think poor Sue's starting to keel over here. <laughs> oh, a little piece about Christmas origins. I'm trying to do better than Graham. It is interesting to look back at the origins of our Christmas customs. After all, many of the midwinter celebrations that we honour today go back to our pre-Christian past. Even the idea of Father Christmas is thought to derive from Odin, father of the Norse gods, AD 800, who would arrive on dark nights to punish or reward his followers. The Encyclopaedia Britannica states that December the 25th was the date of a pagan festival chosen in AD 274 by Roman Emperor Hadrian as a celebration of the unconquered sun. December the 17th to the 24th was the Roman Saturnalia, a time of merrymaking and exchanging of presents. On January the 1st, houses were decorated with greenery and lights and presents were given to the poor. To these Roman rites were added the Germano-Celtic Yule rites, special food and good fellowship, the Yule log and Yule cakes, greenery and fir trees, wassailing gifts and greetings all commemorated the festive season. Fires and lights, symbols of warmth and everlasting life have always been associated with the winter festival. What about cards and carols, the songs of Christmas? Seasonal songs were sung long before Christianity to keep up ordinary people's spirits during midwinter and at other times. The carol or carole has origins in ancient dances of May and Midsummer festivals, and further back in ancient Greece, choros is a circular sung dance. Some present-day carols previously existed in traditional folk song forms. They were more pagan in nature, and many were adapted by the church. The holly and the ivy, don't sing, Graham, is one such. A happy holiday and a merry berry. There we are. Oh, I like that. <laughs> well, we're coming to the end of the St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo, the New Market Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. So, News Talk will be back after Christmas. And so, from Sue, Harvey and myself, Graham, we hope you have a Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Happy Christmas to you all.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.